This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, I'm looking at Cat's fifth POV chapter with Carl Nellis. This is the chapter where Cat captures Tyrion and really lights the fuse for the War of Five Kings. How to describe Carl? Carl is kind of a story monger, I would call him. I first met him because he was the editor of uh, one of my books, A Sacred Dissonance. Uh, now he works behind the scenes at Lore. So if you watch or listen to Lore with Aaron Mankey, Carl's a researcher behind the scenes. He's also the host of the podcast Unobscured. And he prefers me to downplay this part, but I'm going to say it anyway. He has a master's in medieval literature, too. So he doesn't want to put himself on par with Jana or Caroline Larrington or anything like that. But come on, come on. It's, 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 it's worth noting. You get a master's in medieval literature, it's worth noting for this particular podcast. And Steve and I will be covering a little episode called The Reigns of Castamere, a.k.a. The Red Wedding. And in keeping with the theme, Jenna Matthews is going to give us the historical backdrop to The Red Wedding. Without further ado, here is medievalist Jenna Matthews. So it sounds like you get a question from your students related to The Red Wedding. Uh, and whether there is maybe some kind of medieval analog to the Red Wedding. I'm curious to hear what you have to say on that one. Yeah. So I think the Red Wedding, which, you know, hopefully we've all seen Game of Thrones. So I read yes. the book. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm not doing quite no, spoilers. I don't think you have to worry about spoilers. Okay. This okay. Gotten, you know, gotten to season three yet. But, uh, you know, of all the kind of iconic and horrifying scenes in the Game of Thrones um, book and also TV series, you know, the Red Wedding sort of stands apart as being the most gruesome. And it's one of those things that as readers and viewers, we we really and truly hope was not based on real events, but sadly it was. And it was a combination of two um, historical events. So Martin is blurring and blending these two kinds of things. And, and the first one, um, I'll, I'll go in reverse chronological order, actually, uh, occurred in December of 1691. And both of these events took place in Scotland. And we know that Martin was a huge fan of Scottish history. And so mm. it's not surprising that he pulled um, from this particular region. And in that time, uh, the King William of Orange was a newly, uh, he had just usurped the crown from the Scottish uh, James VII. Okay. And so he just got on the he just got on the crown. And one of the first things that he did when he was in office is that he demanded that all the Scottish clans formally renounce allegiance to the former king, right? And that's a wise thing to do and also something that's very prudent. And he gave them just a couple of weeks to do so. So he said in a letter, he sent emissaries out and he says, you have to have a signed statement of allegiance to me due back by January 1st. And you know, winter's no joke in Scotland. I mean, yeah. it's like brutal. 
And so it took a royal messenger until December 28th to reach the McDonald clan, which was one of the clans that existed in the Highlands in a village called Glencoe. And the, this gave the chief like just three days to sign this letter and to get it back to the secretary of state right in the middle of winter with, you know, on a horse. And so the chief was uh, determined to do that. And so he got the letter and he, but he ended up getting kind of waylaid because of weather and he ended up delivering that letter late. And the King's legal team, when they received the letter, were saw this delay as not as an act of insurgency. They didn't see it. They didn't understand. And they weren't really willing to tolerate the fact mm-hmm. that the letter was late. And there's a good reason for this. Right. And that's because the McDonald clan had long been loyal to James VII. So they said, you know, you're doing this despite us. You're making a mockery of this process. Right. You, you did not deliver the letter in good faith. Right. And they vowed revenge. So about a month later, 120 men from the King's Guard showed up at Glencoe and they said that they needed shelter. And as part of the culture of hospitality, the McDonald clan very generously offered them room and board and housed them for over two weeks. And they had a big feast one night and they played cards with all the villagers. And then they waited until all the villagers went to sleep. And then they systematically went and killed as many of them as they could. And there, 38 people died in that attack. And at least 40 women and children ran out of the kind of like the big lodge house and, and they flee, and they they ran out, but there was nowhere for them to go. And they ended up fleeing into a big blizzard, dying of exposure. Hmm. And so that's episode one, right? This is a really pivotal moment in Scottish history that uh, that is still part of the folklore and still part of the story not of story of nationalism that Scots have today. Right. And then the, the second one. So that happened in uh, in 1691, it happened 200 years earlier, um, also in Scotland. And at this time, there was the king of Scotland was 10 years old, and his name was James II. And he had a regent who uh, was running the country for him, and this chancellor invited uh, two other kids, the Earl of Douglas, who was age 16, and his 10-year-old brother over for dinner. And as the legend or as the story has it, all these kids with these two 10 year olds and a a 16 year old are having a great time and they're drinking and they're like probably, you know, playing games and they're super excited. And at the end of the dinner, a big, uh, the head of a big black bull was dropped on the table. And that symbolized the death of the Douglas clan, which was the, uh, the, the, the Earl of Douglas, the 16 year old and and the 10 year old were, were part of the Douglas family. And so at that moment, a bunch of guards dragged the Douglases, the two kids outside. They were given a mock trial, found guilty of treason, and they were beheaded. Hmm. And we don't think that the king of Scotland um, had anything to do about this. This was solely the chancellors taking preemptive measures against two potential threats. He felt like the Douglas clan was rising in popularity and, um, and gaining more power. And he was just worried about, he was worried about you know, that this could be a potential political threat down the road. Um, and so, again, like the sort of surprise attack and the, the violation of, of courtesy and the violation of kind of social norms about like when you are, when you are a guest and when you are, um, are hosting guests, like what codes of behavior regulate those situations right. really lies at the heart of, of the Red Wedding, but also of these two key, of key incidents. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. 
Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Carl, this is one of those chapters that just seems really workmanlike up front. It's like you're learning a lot about the politics of River mm-hmm. Run. And then at the end, it's like you're watching a fuse lit that's going to blow up in your face. Yes. Yeah, it feels kind of uh, <laughs> like, an, uh, like an exposition chapter. Uh, you know, like at the beginning, it's like, all right, get out the map. Here's some geography. We look here. We look yep. there. We look, here's where the river is. Here's where the, these castles are. And it's like, okay, yep. what is this? But yes. And then we hit such a pivotal turning point in the story. It really kind of lulls you to sleep. And you're thinking like, <laughs> yeah, politics of River Run. What could be more boring than the politics of River Run? You yeah. know? And then it's like, uh, it's just those lines at the end. I just read the, how this chapter ends, which is just so arresting. Um, the Captain Rose. Lord Walder is well, my lady. He plans to take a new wife on his 19th name day and has asked your Lord Father to honor the wedding with his presence. Tyrion Lannister sniggered. That was when Catelyn knew he was hers. This man came, a guest, into my house and there conspired to murder my son, a boy of seven, she proclaimed to the room at large, pointing. Sir Roderick moved to her side his sword in hand. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. She did not know which was more satisfying, the sound of a dozen swords drawn as one or the look on Tyrion Lannister's face. So it's one of these chapters where it's like, all right, uh, George is doing all of the the geography work of the Riverlands. And it ends in a way, I think in retrospect, it, for me, it ends like in horror. It feels like, oh, no, this is going to this is gonna, everything is going to go wrong from here on. You know, like there's there's nothing in this book that's going to go right for the Starks after this point. It's interesting you say that because I, I would think this is a moment where if you don't know the story going in, you don't know what's mm. going to happen. And you're not reading back into this moment. Uh, if you love Tyrion, it's a moment where everything goes wrong. But if you love Catelyn Stark like I do, it's a, mm-hmm. such a triumphant moment. It's right. like... Well, George is really great at that. It's like, you know, I think most people do love Tyrion. But from Catelyn's perspective, you know, this is a grieving mother, someone who's trying to get an advantage in an impossible political situation. George is really good at making you feel like, I'm actually rooting for Catelyn in this moment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and some of that is done through the setup. So I want to talk more about like what's going on with all that exposition at the beginning. Mm, okay. Um, Let me do a short synopsis of the chapter. Um, yeah, great. Catelyn and Roderick are traveling north on a warm, rainy day. They sojourn at an inn at the crossroads, confident that no one will recognize that she is the daughter of Hoster Tully. Once inside, she reflects on her childhood and the politics of River Run, After pondering which road she should take, she resolves to go to Winterfell as Ned wished. At supper, she talks with a singer named Marillion until the room is interrupted by the entrance of Tyrion Lannister, his men, and Yorin. After Tyrion recognizes Cat, she decides to test the allegiance of her father's bannermen. She asks several armed travelers to voice their allegiance to Riverrun. 
Then she proclaims Tyrion an attempted murderer, a man who tried to kill her son while a guest at her house. A dozen swords are loosed, and Tyrion is outmanned. So, Carl Nellis, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? Let's start with character. Uh, and I feel like yeah. whatever we, wherever we start, it's going to become chaotic here. <laughs> whatever rung we grab, we're already yeah, on the ladder. Right. But let's talk Catelyn because I really love how much this is a contrast to an earlier scene where she walks into the Godswood at Winterfell. You know, in that scene, we get how alien, she, even though she's lived in Winterfell for years and years and years, mm. it's still an alien place. You know, she doesn't really belong in the Godswood you get the feeling that she doesn't really belong in the North. Uh, and that's like one of those central tensions of her life. Um, here, Catelyn is so at home. And we kind of get, yes, it's exhibition. Like a fish in a stream. Yes, yes, hey. Um, <laughs> um, that her her world is the crossroads where she has knowledge, she has influence, she has power here because she knows how mm. the rivers flow here. She She's at the confluence, you know, which is a word that is used in that kind of geography. Yeah, she's even happy to be rained on. It's like she's totally embraced by the geography of the South, and she just feels like it's like a warm kiss. It, it's it's really, I shouldn't say, it sounds gross. It sounds gross. <laughs> but it does, it feels like a warm embrace. Yeah, everything about this bit of geography feels like home to her. Right. And it's not that some kind of neutral, sterile narrative voice relays it to us. We see it all through Catelyn's eyes. And as she looks left, looks right, looks forward, what we mm. get is all these memories of hers. And, you know, the geography is freighted with meaning because we get it through Catelyn. And, right, like, I love that little description that you're talking about where she says, how ragged and wild she must look. But for once, yeah. she did not care. The southern rain was soft and warm. Catelyn liked the feel yeah. of it on her face, gentle as a mother's kiss. That's that kiss you're talking about. And right, yeah. in contrast to Winterfell, to the north, you know, here, she doesn't even care if she looks ragged and wild. We get a little Arya here, you know, even like a little from mm -hmm. mother to daughter yeah. link. Um, well, and she's and she's recalling her own childhood, yes. right? When she was running around and she kind of had the, the run of the place. You know, she's going into the inn. She's getting sweet pies. You know, everyone loves her. She's like the darling of the community. And so she has really fond memories of this place. Mm -hmm. And it probably does embolden her. In a way that she probably wouldn't feel emboldened up north. Like you mentioned, like how alien she feels in the godswood. She, to the extent that she felt like an outsider there, she feels like the ultimate insider here. Right. right. Well, and she, when she looks around, the line that I have like heavily marked for this chapter is just, Catelyn knew them all. You know, and that's when she's in the inn and she's looking yeah. around. This is where she knows everything. Everyone, you know, we've seen her in Winterfell mm -hmm. and we've seen her in King's Landing. You know, she talked with Ned in the brothel and yeah. she's in other people's worlds in every scene up to this point. Yeah, I really do think that this kind of it's like Superman closer to the yellow sun of, of Earth <laughs> yes, or whatever. Yes. You know, she <laughs> she just feels like she's superhuman here. And, and to a large extent, she kind of is just because of all the class distinctions and whatnot. But 
She's got that Superman kind of yellow sun energy going on. And when she has this confrontation with Tyrion, you know, and we're talking about strategic minds clashing, you know, and it's kind of who are these characters in the story world? They're thinkers, they're, you know, they're plotters, they're schemers, and and Catelyn is trying to, you know, she's trying to follow a mystery and, and unpluck a scheme and find out who, you know, who tried to kill Bran. But this is, like you're saying, this is where she has home field advantage, right? Against Tyrion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she tests it, and it works, and she just feels so satisfied that it worked. It was like, the way she played it was in the moment, she had to decide in a split second what she was going to do. And she knows exactly how to do it. She knows exactly which buttons to push. You know, she talks to the guy at the door first. She talks to the three guys by the fire. You know, finally, once those guys are in, then she talks to the the, the fray men. Because they're, of course, they're fickle. They're going to wait to see where, you know, yeah. where the numbers are. And then it, once it's clear that Tyrion's men are outmanned... Then, of course, the phrase are going to come to the allegiance of Hostratoli. And so then the way she plays it is is just perfect for accomplishing what she wants to accomplish, which is a little thrill. I do. I will say, though, again, I got a little thrill. But then afterwards, I was thinking, oh, no, this is this is going to go badly <laughs> for everybody. Uh, yeah, though, it's it's not until even a later scene that we find out just how good she was kind of improvisationally in the moment mm. netting Tyrion here, right? Because she says, we're going to Winterfell, we're going to Winterfell. And you don't even find out until later on that in that moment, she was playing the whole room, right? She even knows how the gossip network yeah. is going to work. And, you know, so there are layers of... Yeah, she says she's going to Winterfell. She, I think she has it in her mind then that she's going to go to the Eyrie. It's a, it's a bit closer and... We've already learned that it's very, very hard to attack. Um, and her sister is there, so she knows she has you know family support. But it was in, it's interesting in that later chapter that you're talking about, and I always kind of bring this up whenever I'm talking about the differences between Cat in the show and Cat in the books, mm-hmm. is that from Tyrion's perspective, she has outthought him at every turn. That's what he says. And so you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to get the sense that it's just a brilliant play. Like everything she's done has been perfect. And Tyrion, the smartest guy in the story, recognizes it as just a brilliant strategic play. Anyway, from his perspective. And I I think, I I really do think that uh, people don't give Kat enough credit when it comes to that. And we already know from the geography section that she's thinking strategically. She's thinking about the upcoming conflict, where the banners are, how many people will she mm-hmm. be able to recruit into Rob's forces, right? You know, as she's looking, okay, over here is this castle, over here is that, you know, the, these banners over here. The the specter of war is filtering everything she sees. You know, she's looking at, she she's tallying up potential soldiers out of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if it comes to war is another phrase that has already been hanging over everything she's considering. And it's one of those things yeah. that Martin is really good at where this is a case where you have a character in a scene, but you know, as they're walking through the scene, doing what they're doing in the present, it's both freighted with memory as mm-hmm. Catelyn is thinking back to, okay, this is where I grew up and you know, my father and Masha, you know, and her, her bloody horror of a, of a mouth. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, so there's like terrifying. There's a little bit of horror, you know, in the memories. And mm-hmm. it's also freighted with looking toward the future. You know, see, so the, the way that you the way that Martin renders lived experience where every present moment is freighted with memories from the past and you know, expectations and plans and schemes, hopes and especially fears here with, you know, the specter of war. Yeah, and I think that what Martin likes to do quite a bit, he wants to show that some political event, you know, that happened 15, 20, 100 years ago is still having ripple effects in the present. Mm -hmm. You know, the way Walder Frey uh, sort of came late to the party at the Battle of the Trident, you know, all of that business. Yes. That, you know, that tells her something about these bannermen in the room from the twins. And so it's almost like you really need to know the backstory to understand what's going to go on in the present. And in that way, I think he does this amazing job of making the world feel lived in. Yes. The political landscape really feels inhabited. And even these little details here and there, they may seem insignificant, but it's like a pebble dropped in a pond. It may, you know, those ripple effects may actually really change the way that we react to the plot line that we are seeing on the page in front of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and speaking of Martin as a writer, we also get in this chapter developments of themes to things we've seen earlier in in this novel too uh like with uh, sir roderick's opinion of music yeah and it calls you know and he's like <laughs> music's for girls and and you know mm-hmm. not a harp in your I hand don't think but a roderick sword. would be a very good first date <laughs> yeah i don't know I, I think if you were on a first date with roderick i'm not sure he's great company in, in general i don't know how many first dates sir roderick is going on at this point in his life either but yeah, it's there's I don't know if there's a, you know, sort of a Christian mingle for knights that have gone to seed in yeah, Westeros. Yeah, winter fall for me. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, here we have echoes of Sam Tarly, right? Because he has already at this point in the story told John about, you know, why is he here at the wall and his relationship with his father, his relationship essentially with this tradition of masculinity, the way that is expressed mm. in Sam's, you know, in his household that has pushed him out because mm-hmm. he was more interested in singing, right? He was more interested in, in music than in following his father's, you know, violence with steel. And, yeah. and we get an echo of that here. So just the way that Martin is... Yeah, so here Marillion's yeah. kind of being feminized, right? Well, sure. I mean... He's chosen He's chosen to sing. And, of course, from Roderick's perspective, you know, that's such a girly thing to do. Why, why didn't this boy choose a man's occupation? Right. And I don't know whether the narrative, you know, whether Martin is feminizing him or if we're seeing the way that Sir Roderick's perspective... Sir Roderick is certainly feminizing him. But mm-hmm. through Sam and through Sir Roderick... You know, we're getting it. You know, now we we have the terms for it. You know, we can call it toxic masculinity and we can see the ways that this focus on rigid gender barriers, you know, imposed by violence, rigid hierarchies like this, the kinds of damage that they do to people, you know, breaking families like the Tarleys. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the narrative is feminizing really in here. I think it is definitely offering us a look at this dynamic. Well, in addition to that, we have this other little detail that Edmure Tully... Also hates uh, singers. Yep. Because there was this girl that he liked, and, and a singer kind of <laughs> ma- made a play on her. And uh, so you get you get the sense that 
these singers, you know, maybe like less than sort of the ideal of masculinity, but boy, do they have luck with women, right? <laughs> yes. So yes. it's like, yeah, yeah, you, you, maybe you don't have a sword in your hand, but man, the girls just love these crooners. Right. Yeah. There's a sense that this emotive, expressive creativity is a challenge to the mm-hmm. rigid gender hierarchy, including of family lines, you know, of sexual possession, you know, marriage and bonding. And for this rigid world that's that's built through these family ties and alliances through marriage, that, yeah, that, that a singer, that, that mm-hmm. someone who is really dialed into and, and using and living through emotional intelligence and creativity challenges, right. challenges that structure. Yeah, categories that they don't really have, but uh, but totally work, totally work. Like as as old as time, you yeah. know, as old as King David and his harp. You know that that's the kind of uh, the the idea that we're getting here. Yeah, and actually, um, you know, because there's been so much talk, and and I really like this way of reading San Carly as kind of a self insert for Germ, you know, for mm-hmm. for for Martin himself. I think this is one of the scenes that develops that theme of what is the power of storytelling? You know, what is the power of creativity? Yeah. Yeah. Because singers really are storytellers in this world. Right. right? Yeah. The bards. And, and of course, Sam is going to be a storyteller in a way, and he's going to have power because he is sort of a curator of the stories of the past. Yep. Yep. So I I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Now in one of the previous iterations of your life, Carl, Mm. Uh, you did a lot of study of uh, medieval literature. Yes. So I'm wondering if there's anything about this chapter that kind of strikes you with in a different way that it, it might you know, sort of occur to the rest of us. You know, I have to say that <laughs> not, not really so much. Not that jumps, jumps out at me out of this sure. chapter, and especially when it comes to medievalism. You know, I, I'm I'm happy to leave that in the hands of a Jenna Matthews and a uh, and a Carolyn Larrington, and you know the folks who are still you know who are really scholars because right. I went you know from that training you know through the 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 postgraduate level you know I did a master's in in, in medieval lit and mm-hmm. uh, but then I turned to so storytelling and historical research and and that kind of thing. Um, Let me throw something at you and see kind of. See your reaction to this. So I don't think that this event works in an individualistic culture. I just don't think it works. I I think if you place this scene in like a Jason Bourne movie and they're in a coffee shop, Catelyn is shit out of luck. Yeah. It's just not going to, it's not going to work for her. Um, This only works in this sort of ancient collectivist idea where everyone's fate is tied to their family and their family is tied to the larger tribe and the larger tribe is sort of, you know, shown allegiance to a liege lord. And so this whole system of collectivism is a system that can be manipulated and a system that has power that governs almost everything. And so someone like Catelyn can make a play like this because the the collectivist structure that reared her has given her power over someone like Tyrion Lannister. And in a different context, then Tyrion's going to have all the power. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that works for Martin because he's put it in a medievalish kind of setting. 
Whereas it wouldn't work for a modern story. What what would you say to that bold claim? <laughs> no, I like that a lot. And I think that is exactly right. Um, if you were going to set this scene in, uh, you know, the contemporary America somewhere, you'd have to use a different kind of bond or allegiance or, you know, it would have to be a, a different mm. kind of setting. Because you're exactly right. What she does here is call the banners, right? And so that is very distinctive of... The world that he's drawing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, but exactly. But it's not just like a king or a lord calling the banners. It's someone who hasn't been in the region for years. Yeah. You know, it's what has it been like 14 years since she's even been down south. But they have such an allegiance to her sort of doddering old father and the memory of her and the system that gave her power once upon a time that they know what's at stake if they choose not to honor her request. It's such a powerful move. It's such a powerful move for her to make that only works if it's a collectivist culture. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, as you've been talking, I've been mulling over <laughs> contemporary connections. And, you know, I live I live in Red Sox Nation. You know, I live outside of Boston. Oh, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the best example of collectivism <laughs> in America. Yes, what we have today... It, you know, we could still look at sports culture. We can look at, you know, right. uh, feuds, you know, long feuds that still go on that if you're in the right place mm -hmm. having an argument and you see, OK, that guy, he's got a Red Sox cap on and that guy, he's got mm -hmm. a. I can trust. Right. Him. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that if you said, hey, this guy here, you know, and you announced to a room full of Red Sox fans that the guy next to you is a Yankees fan and he's saying some <laughs> some terrible thing that you could mm -hmm. get some help. You could turn the room yeah. against somebody. Um, but it has to be those strong bonds of allegiance. Yes, it has to be a kind it of collective. It has to be core yeah. to your identity. Like, yeah. you can't. You don't really have the option to say no because to say no would be to, like, side with the Yankees, God forbid, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the way the story is constructed here. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, as... The things that have been moving the story forward are choices that people are making. And this is what makes mm -hmm. Game of Thrones so powerful is, is, like you said, in this moment, Catelyn makes a choice and we know that it's going to have major consequences. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's going to the downstream consequences of the choice that she makes here shape the rest of the story. But on one level, what happens here is a coincidence. Tyrion and Catelyn show up at the same place. So let me throw throw something at you, which is, is this way too convenient? Like, it's very, very convenient. This is what needs to happen for the plot. This fated moment is one of those, you yeah. know, uh, where, where <laughs> you know, does it being at a crossroads, does it being, uh, you know, everyone traveling for the tournament of the hand, is that enough to justify it for you? Or is this one of those places where as intricate, as good as Martin is at building mm -hmm. an intricate structure, an intricate plot where all these lives intersect and it's so meaningful because it's people making choices? Mm -hmm. Is the fact that this is I think, a coincidence I, I, a little I think, weak? Um, it may seem – I, I, I didn't stick on that point and I'll tell you why. I feel like Martin's done a great job of showing that if you want to travel – from north to south, you know, Catelyn's going north, Tyrion's coming south. The King's Road is really like the only highway 
that's worthy of of that trek. Um, you know, you could take a, a a boat or whatever, but for most people, they're going to wind up at that inn at some point. So the timing is a little bit weird. Yeah. But you know, I was thinking about the timing element. Let's imagine a scenario where Rob Stark had given Tyrion a warm welcome at Winterfell. <laughs> yeah. And he he was just like, um, "Why don't you stay? Or stay a couple days." Um, you know, enjoy the, the finest that Winterfell has to offer. Tyrion would have totally taken the offer. Yep. He's got no, he's not not in any rush. He's totally going to take the offer if Rob had just shown just a tiny bit of hospitality. The timing of this whole meeting would be different. Maybe those, you know, maybe Tyrion and Cat cross each other on the road. Yeah. But Catelyn has no recourse at that point because the only way that her play works is if there's a bunch of bannermen in that inn. Yes. If they crossed on the road, she's got one <laughs> older knight. Tyrion's got five or six men at his disposal. Yep. Anyway, I but I, I absolutely you're right that this whole thing is stitched together by a bunch of choices that people make, including someone like Rob who has chosen to show Tyrion no hospitality. Yeah. And this is a point where the story does turn on happenstance a little bit mm-hmm. because of the timing, because oh, they show up at the same inn at the same time. And that's what really makes it pivot the way that it does. Hmm. That's interesting. I got a couple uh, literary parallels I want to throw at you. Great. OK. Every now and again, Martin will do a little homage. Did you ever read the uh, Stephen King's Gunslinger? I did not. No. OK. No. I don't know if this is an homage or not, but the who's the woman who's chewing on sour leaf and has like red teeth? Yeah, Masha, the innkeeper. That? Yeah, yeah. So Masha Heddle is like chewing on this sour leaf, and it's made her teeth red. And there are a couple characters who do that in the beginning of Stephen King's Gunslinger. Mm. And I know that sometimes likes to put in little homages to Stephen King. All right, so that that was sort of insignificant. The other thing I wanted to throw at you is a hobbit, a possible hobbit literary <laughs> parallel. Sure. And is maybe not intentional, but if you think to the end of The Hobbit, Bilbo thinks that he can steal the Arkenstone and buy peace. Mm-hmm. You know, if he just takes this thing of great value, maybe he can avert a war. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't end up working out because there's a war anyway, right? Or there's a great battle. Right, Battle of Five Armies, yeah. Well, here Kat is in the situation where she's thinking, this is impossible. War is like right on the horizon. And then you hear her say, it can't come to war. It It just can't. I have to make the right decision here because war would be a horrible option. And what does she do? She steals this thing of great value from her rival. And what she steals is Tyrion Lannister. I wonder (laughs) if there, maybe it's a forced, uh, sort of a forced parallel here, but I do see something like, is she trying to, you know, steal this one chess piece in order to buy peace overall? Like, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I I think we also have a little bit of uh, Prancing Pony here, you know, a little bit of the inn at Uh, Bree, right? Chance meetings, right? (laughs) So, no, I think you're absolutely right that. This is a chapter that is patterned with literary allusions, right? That's pulling in genre tropes, you know, the bloody mouth, the meeting at the inn. I mean, meeting at the tavern is a, you know, 
probably because of Tolkien, probably because of Brie, Prancing Pony. Sure. Like, in yeah. fantasy, in fantasy gameplay, you know, four travelers meet at an inn. You know, like the inn and the kinds of chance meetings that are allowed to happen at the inn are a core trope of fantasy at this point. And so I, I do think it's a reference to I, I can't believe I missed yeah. it, but you're totally right. So that's, that's another question, I think, about do we think, you know, when I was thinking about what's going on here with a chance meeting, and are we happy with a coincidence? Well, in fantasy, chance meetings are what happen at inns. And so is this, a, <laughs> you know, a genre trope? Yeah, that's right. Right? That's totally right, yeah. Uh, that, that's a good point. You know, that actually may be a stronger parallel than the one I came up with. Let me do a, a, sh- a, a few introductions uh, that come up in this chapter. Introductions. So we meet uh, Marsha Heddle and her sour leaf, Hoster Tolley, uh, who we learn is bedridden. Uh, we don't meet him, but we hear about him. Yep. We hear uh, that the Eerie is impregnable. Uh, we hear about the mountain clans of the Vale. Uh, we hear about Lady Went and her ghosts uh, up in Harrenhal. Yes. Lord Frey and his many children and his penchant for being tardy to battle. <laughs> Marillion, the singer, uh, yep. is introduced. I like that he, he says that up north is all blizzards and bearskins. Good alliteration there from the singer. Yeah, blizzards and bearskins. The show differences versus book differences, you know, I think that, most of the chapter is Catelyn's interior. Yeah. Right? Yep. So I think that probably the first eight pages of the chapter is not going to rep- be represented at all. It's that key scene at the end. And I think it's, it, I think the show was pretty faithful to how that all played out. Yeah. Yeah. The rendering of the what happens inside the inn, fantastic. So fun yeah, to see right, come right. alive. Um, did you notice any differences? Um, the, one of the things that I really do carry with me is the bloody smile <laughs> right. of Masha Gettle. Yeah. Um, it's just so good. And I, you have said many times the way that Martin's writing of horror and, you know, informs all of his writing and that he always kind of has that instinct or that ability to throw something unsettling in. And I just... You know, for the past few weeks, I've just been seeing these lips pull back over yeah. bloody teeth. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I don't know. Maybe someone will correct me. I do think that it is something of an homage to these characters in The Gunslinger who are chewing on this sort of, it's not sour leaf, but it's a, it's sort of a, a leaf that um, has some sort of pharmaceutical quality to it. Yeah. Yeah. Carl, this has been so fun. I, I love, man, I, I love how uh, deep we get into the story. If, uh, if people are interested in seeing the fruit of your labor, where can they go? Yeah, so I'm always working uh, behind the scenes for lore podcast uh, researching, mm-hmm. and that's a folklore history show where we dig into popular stories. I love lore. Love, love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, m- must listen. I'm on the research, you know, I'm on the research team behind that. And then uh, my, really my baby is unobscured. Uh, it's a show that I've been working on for, for a while and uh, also hosted by Aaron Mackey. We, you know, we work on it together mm-hmm. and I research and write for that. And uh, the first season was on the Salem witch trials, the second on American spiritualism and how seances, you know, and, and talking to the dead mm-hmm. became a global phenomenon. And then uh, season three was 
Jack the Ripper and what was going on in Whitechapel in 1888. Right. So, yeah, you can listen to the, the work I do on those other shows. Nice. And- so if I went to, like, iHeartRadio and, like, did a search for Unobscured, I'd be able to find that? That's right. Exactly. Excellent. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. And now Steve and I talk about the Reigns of Castamere, a.k.a. the Red Wedding. Here's Steve Osborne. Steve, this is where it all went wrong, man. Yeah, they uh, did an episode without Dinklage, and I I understand why people were outraged. (laughs) I never even put that together. Was this entire episode without Dinklage? It's Dinklage-free. And uh, I think... Is this the first episode? To my knowledge. To my knowledge. This is... uh, so here you are. I mean, everybody's just like, yeah, you know what? Kill them all. If they're not going to give me Tyrion, kill them all. What it was, was Dinklage was like doing Avengers or whatever. <laughs> so, so he was out of town. They're like, well, what do we do? Well, we just kill everybody. Kill everybody. That will bring eyeballs for sure. <laughs> yeah. A lot of fans, just so you know, okay. a lot of fans decided at this point they were done with the show really now i don't know if they ever left because the numbers only ever went up sure right so, so the idea being that there were these people like i will never watch again and then other people like well i was on the fence but if you're gonna kill his mom i'm in i did hear people like book readers say the same thing about this spot in the book being a problem like i remember a friend of mine say something like the only way that they can figure out how to move the plot is to kill people I really don't think that that's true, but that was sort of the way it felt just because of the magnitude of the Red Wedding. Well, that's kind of what I knew going into the series is that that's been one of the things is, you know, it's whether it was a tongue in cheek um, critique or assessment, which is just like, yeah, they're going to, you know, as soon as you get involved, they're going to kill people. And I guess that's not necessarily, it's not terribly new, especially I think in the modern television like series, right? I mean, we've have so many shows with anti-heroes, you know, I mean, you see it in Sopranos and to some degree Breaking Bad and those mm. shows are, you know, it's dramatic. But this show more than most, I mean, it wasn't like Tony Sobrano died at the end of season one. Uh, so, I mean, this show did it in a way that hadn't been done before with Sean Bean. Right. Like, so yeah, cause I mean that, that sort of sets the precedent, right? Where you're, you know, you go into this thing, you're assuming this, I'm, this is the story of Ned Stark. And yeah. it's very clear early that it is and it isn't. It's a story of, it's not Ned Stark in the game of Thrones. It, this is, mm-hmm. this is a bigger picture, right? I guess you could say this episode really was about Ned Stark. This episode was sort of like, yeah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Sure. Because here's Rob, 
not being able to play the game nearly as well as everyone else. And because of that, he's, he's well, going to right? Look at it. He, what, 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 look at the parallels. What does he do early that looks to be biting him is, is just apologizing profusely and taking one for the team, right? Like, I mean, that was the whole Ned thing. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to feign treason for the sake of my family. And it's kind of, it's a similar situation. If I just show humility, let people humiliate me. Yeah. That will be enough. Now, very first when we started this podcast, I remember you saying like, yeah, I've not watched any of these episodes, but... I don't think that I'm going to be shocked by the Red Wedding because it's been such a cultural discussion. Sure. Right. Uh, well, here it is. We, we, you just experienced the Red Wedding. So did that turn out to be true? Um, yes and no. I mean, because I was, you know, because I was prepped for this. This is the Red Wedding episode, right? Like, I, I got the sense, yeah, right? Yeah. And the title, it's very clear. You know, when you read the title, and we've already we've introduced the song in the previous episode, mm-hmm. and it's in according to the song legend, uh, the time when they, they kill everybody, <laughs> they kill all the family, right? I mean, and that's yeah. so it is a bit of a of a spoiler, right? Uh, in in some sense, and I knew that the red wedding was kind of a just a, an onslaught of bloodshed. I had pictured something goes awry. A battle ensues, and there's some collateral damage. And Catelyn being being the collateral damage is kind of what I thought. I didn't think it was going to be that intentional. So you thought Catelyn was going to die, and you kind of had this sneaking suspicion maybe Talisa would. Yeah. But what about Rob? Rob, Rob was the one that got me, at least surprisingly, right? I mean, uh, I was a little... A little taken aback because you know I, we discussed this in the last episode as well. Is that like I I had anticipated, at least in terms of high drama, um, the Theon Rob reunion of some sort. I was mm. very and I was actually kind of curious and maybe a little bit you know looking forward to how that plays out. Now obviously that that's all gone and then the rob narrative is essentially just wiped out right i mean again it's, it's as wiped out as the ned narrative is right like they'll still probably echo but um. so here's the uh, text exchange we had last night <laughs> after you watched you texted uh you fucker <laughs> then you said i'm i was part right and i said you nailed it and then you said when we got off the pod i thought it has to be talisa because she's pregnant really thought rob was gonna make it out And I said, too many characters, time to narrow this shit. And then record tomorrow, question mark. That's fair. But now whatever semblance of good guys there were has vanished. No Rob, Theon moment, no nothing. Lots to process. It isn't like I was even all into the Rob narrative, but it was necessary. And then you say, up is down. (laughs) So, yeah. So I I think that may be a lot of fans' experiences. This is... This is an up is down episode, and it's kind of remarkable to do this again. It's like a magician pulling the same trick, and you're being just as shocked the second time as you are the first time. Um, Because Raw basically is, like you said, has a lot of parallels to Ned, and yet we didn't think Rob was going to suffer the same fate. It is. It is because, and I was, I did a little bit, of course, I'm like now after the fact, just like, 
looking into the wiki pages and fan pages mm-hmm. trying to figure it out like without trying to like look forward that was the trick i needed to find stuff that was processing it real time i didn't want reflections because if it sure. was reflections then you're gonna get like probably why it ties in or whatever so I, it was the interesting yeah, so thing you that didn't I, want spoilers right, right. so the the interesting thing that i read that uh it's not like martin had a hard time with this scene too uh writing it and um yeah yeah and, he said that it was one of the hardest scenes and so like he actually there. skipped it like the details and came back to it right so that I thought was fascinating. So that was good. And I and then he even said that when it aired, he wanted to be out of, uh, he wanted to be in a country where there were no TVs, I think is what he said. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and that's right. Because, uh, you know, people would storm the castle. <laughs> right. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't oppose it, right? But I think I could totally see where people could be like, so this is just what we do, you know, just... We just yeah. kill them off, right? Yeah, yeah I've heard, I heard a lot of fans saying, "That's it, I'm done." And then you, and then you're like, "Okay, well, like you know, you made the you know kind of the the tongue in cheek reference too about like you know, I ah, too many characters, let's narrow it." But then there's the idea of like, well, what? So I'm trading Rob for Ramsey? No thanks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like so. <laughs> these are these are the well, guys. You're all right, against. let's do it. Let's break it down. I don't think we're trading Rob for Ramsey. I think what we're doing is we're trading Rob for Jamie. Because this season is what turns Jamie's arc around. Before he was a complete villain, right? Sure. And then what happens is, okay, so Rob's gone now. But now I'm really invested in to see what happens with Jamie. And I don't just want like someone to get revenge against Jamie, which is probably what I wanted before. Well, now no yeah. one, there's really not a lot of people left to get revenge on Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anybody was going to get revenge on Jamie, they're bleeding out and <laughs> well here all right there, here's the other you know neat trick that is pulled here because like you said you weren't all that invested in rob it's true um and and yet the death just feels so significant to the plot and let's look at it you know we, we had talked about the war of the five kings well renly's gone right, right? rob is gone stannis has sort of set a you know, had a major setback and Joffrey just looks like unassailable, right? If he had the best chances to be on top before, he certainly is even more so now. Right, because we got, then, got the Tywin factor, right? I mean, Right. Tywin, Lady Olena, Tyrion's still over there. Marjorie's pretty smart. And, well, and then uh, now you have essentially, you know, Bruce Bolton has assembled, it seems, towards the Lannisters, right? That's right. That's so, right. So there's other factions being, like, his, his, their, the Lannister influence is now expanded, right? It's not, like, held up in... in well, that's right. And Tyrion married Sansa, which means that he could take the North, you know, and say, look, my child is the heir of Winterfell or whatever. Right. So you've got all of these reasons to think, okay, the, the Lannisters are going to succeed, but then, you because you know the, what kind of show it is, you're thinking... Well, this is all this is all just a ruse, right? Well, and then you add that there's a complication with Jamie, right? Everything is in King's Landing is sort of positioning itself for we just got to get Jamie back. I mean, Jamie's Jamie's a big deal, and Jamie's different now, uh, right? To, he's to some made degree. a promise to Brienne, right? Right, and he's not the same person he was when he left King's Landing. Um, you know, he's not the guy that attacked Ned Stark and. Um, He's just a whole different guy now. Well, he's also he's also has one less hand, so he could be conceivably less 
less of a threat even even if he is a redeemed character he's redeemed mm-hmm. but, but not as effective right i mean so it's a, that's right it's a very complicated thing right and then the question is where does does cersei have the same feelings for this version of jamie and if not mm-hmm. then what is her intent with him what is his relationship with Tyrion at this point or going to look like given that he is going to come face to face with Tyrion, who they're both now damaged goods right i mean well and sansa is now Tyrion's wife and jamie's made a promise to brienne to return sansa to her mother She's of not course an option now maybe not an option but i don't know if jamie knows it yet right right I mean, at some point, um, word travels fast. I mean, these crows get around. So you can probably guess why I was sort of dropping certain hints about guest right in previous conversations. Right. It's pretty egregious. <laughs> yeah, this is the biggest violation of guest right you can imagine. And I don't know if they did enough to set that up to know that whole bread and salt ceremony, what that actually meant. Mm-hmm. Because what I think... Rob thinks he's got armor going in. Rob thinks, well, bread and salt's going to protect me. Right. If I eat the bread and salt, then at least the the worst that Walter Frey can do is humiliate me. Right. And if I can just take it, then I'll just survive this and I'll get to where I need to be. I I, I probably watched this episode four or five times or whatever uh, in the last you know few years, but it gets me every time. That you think, okay, Rob got it, man. Boy, he's really getting it. He's really getting it hard. Okay, now we're good. Right, right. And then you're in the wedding, and like, it's revealed Edmure's new bride is actually a looker. Yeah. And then Rob and Walder exchange that little that little look, like, hey, see what you could have had. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it was almost like, okay, resolution. Sure. They had it out. They've resolved. Now we're just we're just hanging out, having fun. I I think that they did a really great job of making it seem like Rob has already got his comeuppance. Yeah, yeah. No, I would agree with that. That, that, that. It's a very it's a very well put together episode. I don't think there's any question about it. Avenge. Now it's like the 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 ability to avenge the Starks is dwindling. Right. We've got. I mean, we have two essentially, and three if you count Jon Snow. But I'm not really sure what to think of his his narrative at this point. Well, okay, yeah, but Arya's whole narrative is about vengeance, right? Sure. He worships death. She has a death list, and she gets right to the gate, right? So she gets so close to you know to the thing that she wants, and the Hound even calls it out. He's like, "You get even more frightened the closer that we get, because you can just taste." Right being back with your family in addition to sort of, you know, moving the plot, you know, just the political plot of the five Kings. You're also giving Arya that bitter moment that will need to be avenged. Well, not only the the event, but like her goal, her, her, her mission changes dramatically because it's, it's, I want revenge and I want to be returned. Now there's getting, there's no one to return to at this point. Yeah, Winterfell's gone. John and Bran and Rickon are like lost somewhere up the north, right? Right. Uh, both parents are gone. Maester Lewin's gone. It's like there really is no place for her to go. Yeah, so she is truly somebody without a home right now. And she's traveling with someone who's on her Deadpool. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
oh, going back to that sequence where he like, you know, he's kind of how the closer she gets, the more afraid she becomes. But man, what it when she tells him that she's gonna stab him through the eye, mm-hmm. um, his face changes in such a way where it's like, like at that moment you get the sense like, oh, like all of her fear went away when it came to when it came to focus on his death and her killing him. Suddenly, like his look, I think revealed that like, oh that's not the same afraid because <laughs> he just said, you know, I could see the fear in you, your, your, your face, your words, they, they don't disguise it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, when she says it all of a sudden, all of that seemed to change. And it was like, no, no, well, no. what's his thing? His big thing is murder, right? He loves to talk about murder. He loves to threaten murder. He says, everybody he loves loves to, it. He says everybody everyone knows it. it. He knows it's like he, he can see it in people's eyes. He knows what it looks like. And all of a sudden he sees something in her eyes. That suggests, oh, she means business. Right. I've seen this look before, and you know, she. This is not what I expected. Right. Um, Heather's any 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 good Heather reactions that we would be interested in? Uh, she uh, like I started talking about the episode like kind of right after it, like just, and she's just like ah, she kind of gave me a, she sort of stiff armed me. So I'm, she didn't. I, she needed to process. She's, I got to think about this. Uh, you know, and I'm like, cause, cause again, she doesn't have a red wedding warning. So at least right. I, I had sort of emotionally prepared, like I'm going to see something. So even if what I saw was kind of like jarring, it wasn't as jarring as someone who has no idea what's about to happen. Like that there's any danger. There's like some suspicion, like, eh, this seems to be going a little too well. So I'm bracing. Right. But you don't know what you're bracing for. Whereas I knew, I knew to like brace heavy. You know, the scene that kind of got me this time was how Arya got close to releasing the wolf. Right. Yeah. Right. She was like, you know what? She's like 10 yards away from Grey Wind. And we know Grey Wind is just going to be a wrecking ball or whatever. Right. Unless he gets John Wicked. And so, yeah, right. <laughs> and he got, that's exactly what happened. He got John Wicked. Um, but you killed John Wick in this case. Yeah. So anyway, I, I thought you? Arya might be she, John Wick in this case. Yeah, that's that's true. She's so close. She's just the kind of person to know to let the wolf out, right? So she's the perfect person to have in that spot. And of course, it's all for naught. Yeah. The other major thing that happens in this episode is that Bran wargs into Hodor. Yeah, he sure do. And this sort of impresses everybody. Um, and in addition to that, it kind of increases his possibility because this is a kid with no legs, right? Yeah. And Hodor is, you know, he's he's all brawn and no brain, in other yeah. words. So there, you got that. Um, Ricky Walnuts get some lines, man. Ricky Walnuts crushes in this episode. He was holding out on us. Yeah. No, he certainly was. Uh, it was a, it was a really good really good scene I thought um, especially because you know you know how I feel about Ricky Wallace. Uh but this was good this was a good all around good um, sequence there uh, which is good because I mean I, like Heather really is like completely in on the the brand subplot and um, and I'm more of the yeah that's fine. Uh, I always felt that way reading the books. I always felt like, oh, geez, Bran again. Give me a break. Okay. (laughs) This guy, like, and his name is Bran, you know? It's just a a really milquetoast name, you know? Yeah. 
But I think this episode did a really great job of making his journey interesting, right? Because he's going to, he's splitting off with Asha and Ricky Walnuts. And he's figured out how to use his ward powers. Right. So that means, mean, obviously, that changes things dramatically. Right. Which is always sort of the second stage of a good superhero story. Like, the first stage is always sort of like, establish this person's weakness and this person's humanity. The guy gets his powers. Mm-hmm. And then at the beginning of the second stage is, okay, now I'm going to tinker with this, figure out how to use these things. Right. And so it's suggestive of a third stage where he comes, he becomes pretty formidable right he and he finds his equal and has to vanquish his equal or something so that's pretty typical superhero stuff i think yeah no i get it and so so with that it's like all right now we have a little something again that's more magic for me to invest in but you know they've done a pretty good job of making the magic inevitable so that i can just continue to to wrestle with with the inevitable john and aria have a little parallel in that they're both advocating against murdering an innocent old man. Mm-hmm. So Arya is trying to get the hound to Yeah, very you know, very Terminator 2 moment. Very term Yes, perfect. That's a perfect analogy. That's right. So yeah, so the hound is the terminator and he's he's on his first journey toward humanity or something. Like right. And of course, this is what makes John. John isn't able to kill the the guy and uh seemingly he got a divorce from Ygritte. This that was, was sort little, of them breaking up. Yeah, that was a little um, I, I found that to be fairly uh, um, odd. A little upsetting, right? I mean, so I mean, obviously he just leaves. You can kind of chalk it up to, look, man, I was, was getting eaten by a bird. I gotta get out of here. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, so I feel like you can never you can never i mean i had a i've had a bird kind of fly in my face and you know it kind of it kind of messes with the rest of your day i get it um but uh has this, would this happen recently no but i used to have chickens i mean so when we have uh <laughs> we had, so john just is like he bounces so then it then it does raise a question of Did like the chicken go after your no 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 it's just you know you you deal with chickens and sometimes they're a little they're you know you want to get their eggs and they, and they get up in your face they get up in your face yeah Wow. Okay. Um, you have him leave. And so it's like, though it does bring up the, well, was his relationship with her kind of part of the, the ruse? Um, or did he just, did he forget about her? <laughs> he just Do had, the chickens ever try to scratch your eyes? I, well, you don't, you don't, uh, you, you don't stare them down. Like you give them their moment, right? If they're like, if they're kind of going, you know, but then you just kind of like, right, get out of there. Cause like, I always just assumed that chickens were pretty docile. Not go after their eggs, man. You see how they like it. <laughs> uh, so we learned that we learned something interesting about wargs. So this guy, uh, Orel, mm-hmm. seemingly right before he dies, he like he wargs out. He he wargs out and he becomes the the eagle. Yeah. So not only can a warg do that, a warg can like get a second life. So that's it. Yeah. So is he an eagle now? Is that what I'm? Guess he's an eagle. Guess he's an eagle. Okay. I mean, I guess that's okay. Maybe that's better than being death. But now I have to ask if you could either just have a clean death or warg into one of your chickens. What would you choose? Well, the chicken is is a tough one because. 
a chicken's always on borrowed time. I mean, you don't you ever see a wild chicken? <laughs> like a feral chicken? Yeah, no. there's a reason for that. Because <laughs> uh, if it gets out, some something's gonna get it. Right. I mean, like you're you're, you're an eagle, and you're like, oh, catch me if you can. <laughs> okay. The other thing I wanted to mention was we never even talked about the Danny uh, part of this episode. That's true. We didn't. Well, you got more of the goofball. Yeah, the goofball <laughs> seems to be real good at his job. That's great. In addition to the other things he can do, he's also the greatest whistler in the land. <laughs> that's good. I, You know what? I think that's underrated. I think if you were the greatest whistler in the land, you would get all kinds of gigs. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it makes him less of a goofball. I think it only adds to it. That's true. No, that's right. You'd be the Bobby McFerrin. <laughs> Of Game of Thrones. Man, if he would only speak in Bobby McFerrin, um, you know, <laughs> scat style or whatever. Oh, my God. That would add a lot to that character. He comes so. in with a bag of heads. <laughs> All right. So we talked uh, in the pre- <laughs> we, we talked in the previous episode about. head I took. <laughs> I'll open its eyes so he can look. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, I don't I forget what I was talking about, man. Well, we were talking Lannisters and stuff like that. <laughs> we were moving um, away. Do you didn't want to talk about the uh the Oh. Um I love the the scene where Sam becomes a wizard. Yeah. Because he always we knew that he always wanted to be a wizard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and I think he always wanted a girl to talk to him and he gets both in one scene. Right? What a what a great um uh literacy campaign that little episode was, wasn't it? <laughs> it's almost as good as when the Fonz got his library card. This <laughs> is reading is magic. That would have been they a really should have a, at least brought in LeVar Burton for this episode. Just an absolute perfect opportunity at the end to have like a, a more you know moment. or a, That's one to grow on. <laughs> I want that eagle to fly into the sky and you pan up to see a rainbow. And LeVar Burton is just sitting in the cloud reading me a book. That would be the perfect end of this episode. Just a moment where <laughs> a young Michael J. Fox and Family Ties is like, hey, you want to be a wizard at home? Open up a butt. <laughs> Open up a butt. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. 
just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved the venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. things that Carl and I didn't discuss remarkably was Tyrion's character. We spent a lot of time on Cat, which, you know, it's a Cat chapter, but Tyrion's in the chapter. So anyway, I thought I would amend that omission by reading a little bit from uh, Winter is Coming by Caroline Larrington. This is from page 105. Tyrion has a special status as a dwarf, and yet, problematically for Tywin and Cersei, he is a Lannister. He functions as a joker and a truth-teller, as a tortured soul in a complex relationship with his family. In medieval belief, dwarves are often considered as malignant. They have a particular role in medieval romance as conduits of information, but in that function they were often churlish. A dwarf actually strikes one of Guinevere's maidens across the face with his whip, refusing to give his master's name when the queen inquires it. In Norse tradition, dwarves are craftsmen, skilled in metalwork, and in particular, though cunning, they can be grateful when treated. In one story, a dwarf manages to reattach the severed feet of the maimed hero, a favor he grants because the man has been kind to his daughter. Tyrion shares the dwarfsmith's imaginative capacity. He cleverly modifies the saddle designed to help Bran, and shows remarkable strategic leadership at the Battle of Blackwater. His lustfulness is typical of the dwarf, too. In another Norse tale, four dwarves craft the most splendid of necklaces, the legendary Brisinamon. The beautiful goddess Freya longs for it and does not balk at the price demanded. She willingly spends a night with each of the four craftsmen. Yet one of Tyrion's particular strengths in the show is precisely to subvert the stereotype of the dwarf in medieval and folkloric traditions. He deploys many one-liners, but he's not a comic character, as Tolkien's doors often are. 
nor is he treasure-obsessed or avaricious as folkloric dwarves can be. Lannister Gold has provided all he wants so far, and he resists sailing with Shay to Pentos because he fears to lose that valued status as a member of a great house. Tyrion's intelligence is far removed from low dwarf cunning, he's much smarter than Rumpelstiltskin, and he also lacks that folktale dwarf's spitefulness. He made, as Ferris observed above, as a pretty good acting hand, and if he takes on that rule for Daenerys, she will truly reap the benefits of a clear-sighted and ethical cast of mind. Thanks again to Caroline, and that's all for this week.